0: Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. We've been in Genesis 1 considering what's going on with what is structured in the text and how it communicates, what's going on in the text, um, what's happening as God creates, like when he separates waters, what is he actually creating? Oh, he's making atmosphere. And when he pulls the waters back and reveals dry land, now, okay, now he's creating earth and sea and we're marking out these habitation spaces for creatures. Well as we've walked through that we need to start now looking toward something like Genesis 2 because there's information in Genesis 2 that's often highlighted by individuals who want to make <clears throat> challenges or claims that Genesis 1 and 2 contradict each other. They run into each other and, and that needs to be addressed, and there are a couple, I think, really key moments in Genesis 2 that help us highlight that, and so that's what I want to look at as we look through this, uh, this quick podcast today. Um, first, historically, Genesis 1 and 2 have been read as a connected series of narratives, a kind of paired set that lay out for us the full scope of God's work in creation, and the establishment of the earth and the universe. And in full honesty, I have read the Bible, and I still read the Bible as a connected and unified narrative from cover to cover. I was just doing this with my students in class this morning. Uh, The Bible is a macro narrative. It's a large scale, connected, interwoven narrative. It's one storyline. And within that one storyline are a great number of little vignettes and, and uh, scenes and micro-stories that create the composite whole. And so as I look at Genesis 1 and 2, I'm inclined to look at them as connected narratives and to find ways to talk about the way Genesis 1 is presenting what's happening in God's creation and the way Genesis 2 is presenting God's creation without looking for discrepancies or trying to find problems and contradictions. Others, on the other hand, have looked into the details of Genesis 2 and will try and argue that there are contradictions and discrepancies between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We have spent most of our time in Genesis chapter 1, paying close, close attention to how the structured literature of the text of Genesis 1 helps shape the meaning and the way that we read it. Is it poetic? Is it poetry? What do the poetic-like structures of Genesis 1 do to the meaning being conveyed? That's a lot of what we've talked about. Today, what I want to do is look at Genesis 1 and 2 as a continuous narrative, of God's creation, as sort of two sides of the same coin. These two stories, or these two creation accounts, I think work together and round out our picture of God's creation. The nature of that creation and the role of humanity in that creation get filled out as well as we look at what's transpiring between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, if we pay attention to individuals like John Walton, can be read as a focused treatment on creation in terms of temple. Eden and the garden become the central place for God's presence in this temple like creation of Genesis 1, the structured and tiered setup. But really, we only see that as we start going into Genesis 2 and we're paying attention to the fact that Adam is made outside of Eden. This is where we're headed in a a little bit. Genesis 1, in terms of the literature, is poetic, it's structured, it's rhythmed, but Genesis 2 reads more like you would expect sort of a typical narrative. It has a flow to it, it's told more like a story. The rhythm is missing. The serious repetition is not there. The days of Genesis 1 don't appear in Genesis 2, but there's still a sequence in creation. Principally, the point of possible tension between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is the sequence of events that transpire in Genesis 2. In this possible tension, we need to remember that Genesis 1 is perhaps providing us with an oversight. Sorry, not an oversight, an overview Genesis 1 is providing us with an overview, and it's a highly structured version, perhaps even a temple-structured version, of what God's done in creation. Genesis 2 is focused on humanity, our relationship to God and one another, and the formation of all that God has made. No, formation, not just creation. Because that brings about the intimacy we're going to see in Genesis 2, God's forming things, not just speaking them into existence. So, Genesis 2, 5 through 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small, small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then... So when, <laughs> when there was no bush of the field and no plant, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. It seems that there's no plants on the earth here, but God's making Adam from the dust of the ground. Well, if we take our cues from Genesis chapter one, then there might be a bit of a problem here. The dry ground in Genesis one is uncovered on day three. And humanity is made on day six. Now, we, to be fair, we have dry ground. But on day three, we not only have dry ground, but vegetation appears in Genesis 1. And humanity is made on day six. And so on day three, we get dry ground and vegetation in Genesis 1. But here, we're told... God's making Adam from the dust of the ground where there are no plants. It's interesting. However, if we go one verse down from chapter two, verse seven, and we pay attention to Genesis two eight, it tells us this, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Oh, it's important to note here, like we noted in Genesis 1, beginning with verse 3, that the word planted is written in the consecutive imperfect tense. That means that what God planted, God had planted. And the implication of the tense is that it happened in the past, connected to a series of events, and has an ongoing implication for the present. Which means before God made Adam, in the dust outside Eden, God had planted a garden in Eden, in the east, that was full of lush vegetation, like Genesis 1, day 3. However, it does present us with a case where the plants of the ground in Genesis 1 might be limited to the land of Eden and or the garden in Eden, and we got to pay close attention to that. Because if Adam's being made where there are no plants and Genesis one has day three being filled up with vegetation, then maybe the scope of what's happening in Genesis one has started with the cosmos in the first two verses and is zooming in on the place that is Eden and this sort of temple central. But that's a lot (laughs) to consider, I'm not saying, We shouldn't. I'm just saying it's a lot to keep in mind. So God had planted a garden in the east, and then he took the man that he had made, and he put him in the garden that he had already planted. This, in turn, limits the scope of what Genesis 1 might be talking about, but does lend some credibility to to readings like John Walton's about reading Genesis 1 as a kind of temple text, as a kind of creation text about temple and the nature of god's creation as a kind of temple dwelling space now this same tense issue the consecutive imperfect shows up again in 2 19 where we're told that god had formed the animals and is now bringing them to adam to name them genesis 1 and 2 read together We now have a realization that God had already made those animals and is now concerned with his partner's participation in naming them. It isn't necessarily the case that God's made Adam and then gone ahead and made the rest of the animals. Now if it is that way and God has made Adam and now is making the rest of the animals, then we can talk about the fact that humanity's not complete in the scripture until there's male and female until there's Adam and Eve but that's an interpretive move that others have made i'm relying on the tense of genesis 2:18 and again in 2:19 that is that consecutive imperfect tense that's telling us that god had formed the animals and is now bringing them to adam for their naming and so the creation of the animals precedes adam's creation just like the creation of the garden precedes Adam's creation in the dust of the ground. See, the tension between Genesis 1 and 2, I don't think, is an actual tension. Instead, the two texts complement one another. They work together, and they give us a full picture of God's creative work. First, Genesis 1 tells us an organized, structured, and large-scale story, even if it is focused, in this kind of irony, on a very specific, temple-esque kind of small space on the planet. God's work in creation is structured, it's organized, it's highly fine-tuned, it's detailed, and it fills the cosmos with his glory like a temple. But Genesis 2 tells us a story about God's intimacy, his closeness with his creation. God's present with his creation, near to it. He's forming it with intention and intimacy in Genesis 2. He stoops down and makes, manufactures, Forms like a potter does clay. Across Genesis 1 and 2, we're told of a God who has structured, organized, created, and purposed to the universe that we inhabit, but we're also told of a God who is personally connected, invested, and present to that creation. God is an all-encompassing, other, but near and personable as, as well. God is structured and organized, but intimate as well. Genesis 1 and 2 give us a clear picture of the God we will come to know over the course of the rest of the Bible. A God who is organized, personal, committed to his creation, even when the people he made in his image rebel against him. Until next time.